When you can align purpose, technology, product, people, business model, and capital, you can change the world. Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Oscar Polito. We're kicking off a new mini-series on sustainability, where we'll touch on topics like new technologies to decarbonize our economy, corporate culture and creating an inclusive workplace, and racial equity. Today, we're talking about the future of climate technology. When we think about climate tech, wind and solar power are usually top of mind. But there's a new generation of technology in areas like battery storage, autonomous driving, and power grids. How will these new technologies help us solve the climate crisis? We're joined by Steve Howard, Chief Sustainability Officer at Tomasek. Tomasek is an investment company owned by the government of Singapore. And recently, BlackRock and Tomasek announced a joint venture called Decarbonization Partners to invest in next-generation private companies that are paving the way towards a net-zero economy. We'll talk about what new technologies are emerging, the opportunity in areas like autonomous vehicles and new fuel sources, and how we can ensure the energy transition is a just transition. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today on The Bid. Oscar, it's great to be with you. So Steve, you're the Chief Sustainability Officer at Tomasek, which is an investment company owned by the government of Singapore. So tell us a little bit more about Tomasek and specifically what you do. Well, Tomasek's an investment company headquartered in Singapore, and it's a long-term, very diversified investor with assets all around the world, and a lot of companies that are long-term, where we may have quite a significant stakeholding, and we call them the Tomasek portfolio companies. They can be airlines or power companies or retailers, and we're regularly making new investments, mostly into private companies. The firm itself has got offices from Singapore to Europe to India to China to the US with about 800 very diverse international employees. And I must confess, I went on Tomasek's website, and one of the terms that caught my attention is that you described Tomasek as a generational investor, which I think speaks to perhaps the long-term nature of the investments that you make. Yeah, Tomasek's about 50 years old or so in its history and is investing for the future of the citizens of Singapore. And from that point of view, it's taking a true long-term perspective. When you think a lot of the investment world has gone into quarterly cycles or even less, sometimes days, hours, minutes, seconds, we really are thinking long-term. And Steve, what does it mean to be the chief sustainability officer at Tomasek? The firm's made the genuine effort to embed sustainability at the core. So to really look at it, how do we work with our portfolio companies? How do we shape our future investments? How do we think about climate change, environmental impact, social equity issues? And how do we unlock positive impact? And my role is really work with the teams, with people across the firm to look at how do we put strategies in place? How do we deliver to that? I'm a lifelong sustainability guy. So when you've got that fantastic diversity and 800 colleagues in the sustainability team, it's great to have that challenge. So when you think about embedding sustainability at the core of Tomasek's investment process, where do you start? I mean, maybe it's worth just taking a step back and looking at climate as a challenge. And you think, so we produce about a billion tons a week of CO2 emissions, which is the main heat trapping gas. 
And we've got about, well, it's less than 400 weeks left before we've used up all the carbon, put it all into the atmosphere to blow the carbon budget to stay under one and a half degrees centigrade warming, which is the sort of safe limit that came out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. You know, you could say the clock is ticking, we need to halve emissions this decade, and then we need to get to zero emissions or net zero emissions around about mid-century. At the same time as we have very significant economic growth, urbanization, more people joining the global middle classes. So it's an incredible challenge. And it means we've got to have root and branch transformation of our energy systems and mobility of the built environment, of food and agriculture, and of the materials we use. This is going to be the race of our lives as we look at how do we reinvent everything. Certainly the transition to a low carbon economy is front and center on many people's minds. I don't think that the way we achieve a lower carbon economy is just by installing more solar panels or driving more electric vehicles. I think that helps, but perhaps you can talk about what are some of the other sources of innovation that represent the next generation of climate solutions? Fortunately, lots of those things are underway now. And some of the exciting ones, maybe starting with energy. So Solar is super exciting. You said it's not just about solar, but I think this is really a solar century. We're installing more than 100,000 solar panels an hour around the world now, an incredible pace. And if you can look by the end of the decade, solar is already the cheapest form of new energy in many parts of the world, and it's going to get breathtakingly cheap. The same with wind. But like you said, Oscar, it's not enough. We've got to have really good energy storage. So how do we store that energy? Because the sun doesn't shine in the middle of the night and the wind doesn't blow year round. And you can see real development with all sorts of different types of energy storage. How do we have a super smart grid as well in the way we do things? And then how are we really energy efficient? And energy efficiency is everything from LED light bulbs through to really efficient ways of cooling buildings. The 20th century was really about fossil fuels. It was about coal and oil and gas. And this century, it's about renewables. It's about the sun and the wind and the energy systems. And it means we can go from having very large coal-fired power stations to every rooftop being a power station. And we can decentralize and democratize energy production. So that's super exciting. And this shift to renewables and the electrification of most things is the base of it. And that connects to mobility, because one of perhaps the greatest inventions that transformed the 20th century was the automobile and the internal combustion engine. At the same time, actually, there were electric cars then with lead-acid batteries. They were sort of the dominant form of the early auto. Now you can see 120 years later, we're coming back and electric vehicles are taking over. And we can see this is happening really fast, because with these technologies, As you get to scale, things get cheaper every year. So solar has got almost 20% cheaper every year for the last decade. Electric batteries in cars are the same. They can store more, the energy density increases, and they get cheaper. So they get longer range for less money. And we can see the crossover point coming now where the purchase price of an EV is cheaper than the purchase price of an internal combustion engine. I'm a geek for these things, but the internal combustion engine is known as ICE. 
you know, the internal combustion engine, if you think of the acronym. So you could say the end of the ice age is within the next decade or so. So we'll see late this decade, we'll see a wholesale switch towards electric vehicles. And then you can plug them in at home, you can plug them in at work, you never have to go to a gas station again. It's a real transformation. But because they're simpler vehicles, electric vehicles, it also unlocks things like the autonomous vehicles that we've heard about. We made a recent investment in a trucking company based in Sweden, and they're exciting because they're looking at autonomous trucking, but it's kind of trucking as a service. So rather than having to own trucks, if you want to ship stuff, whether that's foodstuffs or Coke bottles, whatever you want to ship, they'll plan your logistics for you. They'll look at the flow of goods you need, and then you'll have autonomous electric trucks with no tailpipes, no pollution, will take you from A to B. We're in the middle of a pandemic now, but actually every year we lose about 10 million people to air pollution around the world. And that's coming from industrial emissions, from power stations, from fossil fuel, and from the tailpipes of the vehicles in the world. We'll see this sort of clean air revolution alongside the rollout of mobility and electric vehicles. I love your analogy about the ice age and the internal combustion engine. I don't know anybody that lived in the ice age, but I suspect that in the future, we might be sitting around reminiscing about what the internal combustion engine was. I know lots of my friends would describe themselves, like, I'm from the UK, so they describe themselves as petrol heads. They love, they get deep, passionate pleasure from driving internal combustion engine vehicles. Once people have tried an EV, and I tried one, Years ago, I was taken around a test track and I was driving very carefully in this prototype EV. And the founder of the company said to me, Steve, just have a go. And I'm not really a boy racer, but the performance was fantastic. So there's no compromise in these solutions, which is really exciting for people around them. Steve, as you describe these technologies and some of the newer technologies that are coming on board, well, actually, are they new? Have they been around for a while or are these? innovations that have come about more recently? Some things you could say have been around for a very long time. Solar's half a century old, but it's got more and more efficient and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So I just renewed the solar power station on my roof here in the Netherlands, not the sunniest part of the world. And the previous panels, they were like eight, nine years old. And I've almost doubled the capacity of my roof to produce power by swapping them out. Some other things are really breakthrough innovations. And if you look at something like food and ag, we can see a revolution in plant-based foods where we're really looking at taking food from something that's weather-dependent, that you grow in the field with chemical inputs, to something that's more of a thoughtful manufacturing process that uses sort of a life sciences and biotech behind it. So Something like the Impossible Burger, and I confess to having been veggie for a long time. So I was very excited when I had my first Impossible Burger. I was almost teary-eyed, actually, because I didn't stop eating meat because I didn't like the taste of it. But they've got something that is an incredibly good analogue of a burger because they've had 20, 30 PhDs in a lab looking at how do you create plant-based heme. And heme is the iron molecule that sort of gives it the ready color and the taste that you're used to associating with a burger. Now using science to develop something that's 
radically more sustainable. It's about 90% on everything, 90% less water, 90% less greenhouse gas emissions, 90% less land use to produce the same amount of calories and protein with less saturated fats. So this is where we're using the best of science. And this is what excites me. Where I really like the innovations, they excite me around the things that surprise you that you wouldn't normally look at. There's a really interesting alternative materials company looking, how do you use science and how do you use nature as a platform rather than using, say, fossil fuels as a platform? So we're actually looking at the threads from materials because cotton's very impactful on the natural environment, polyester is. But they looked at spider silk as an inspiration. And then they used biological production, sort of nature's engine to make proteins that simulate the sort of spider silk. So you can spin and weave new materials that are incredibly high performing, but have a tiny fraction of the impact. And then they've harnessed the power of mushrooms. And maybe we'd never thought the world would be saved by mushrooms, but mushrooms are a really interesting organisms. And, you know, I'm a German ecologist by original background. I may have more interest in mushrooms than most, and not just as a culinary item, but the world's biggest organism is a super mushroom, they think, in the Pacific Northwest. It's sort of a square mile or two of fungal hyphae, all one organism, all underground. The mushrooms are just the fruiting bodies. So mycelium grows a thick skin. And if you grow it in the right conditions, it produces something that is natural leather. Stella McCartney's got a new collaboration to do high fashion mushroom leather. It's not just about hard tech innovation on the next generation of solar panels is really looking across everything from food to agriculture to mobility to the built environment. I definitely did not know there was a linkage or could be a linkage in the future between mushrooms and leather. I suspect most people didn't realize that either. But you talk about these innovations. Tomasek obviously has a big presence in Asia, but you invest around the world. Are there certain regions or countries that you feel are making more progress when it comes to climate tech solutions? I think there can be a link. I mean, obviously, you look at the innovation ecosystem. So Silicon Valley and the region still plays a part in this. But there are areas, southern Sweden and Denmark as a bit of a hub. Israel is a bit of a hub. But you can see, like I just think of plant-based food, just because we've been talking about it, we've invested in companies that are producing a chicken without an egg or producing an egg without a chicken. Both in Singapore, we've done Australian plant-based food companies. We've done US plant-based food companies. So this is really a global phenomenon now. And you can see today's young entrepreneurs are excited about this challenge. It's great to hear this is a global initiative. And so maybe this is a good segue to talk a little bit about the partnership that BlackRock and Tomasek have undertaken here, a partnership called Decarbonization Partners. Now, BlackRock and Tomasek have known each other for many years, but recently it was announced that Decarbonization Partners would invest in the next generation of private companies that are helping accelerate the transition to net zero. So tell us more about this venture and why it was started. I think as we came together as two partners and two firms, we were looking and saying, we know the innovation ecosystem is exciting. And there's lots of technologies and business models out there. And we've got plenty of things except time. 
So we need to drive scale. So we looked at the combined capabilities of the two firms, really. BlackRock's extensive reach, fantastic data analytics, really strong alternative investment platform. And then on Tamasek, the fact that we've been focusing on really early stage companies from a sustainability, but we've also got a portfolio ecosystem of companies that are looking to transition through the energy transition or the food transition or the mobility transition. And it comes back to the issue of we have to halve emissions by the end of the decade. So we've really got to look at how do we help companies commercialize and commercialize at a real pace. You could say this is a dual objective approach that we're taking here with a new fund manager that Tamasek and BlackRock will co-lead between them. And we're looking at really the maximum impact we can have on decarbonization. We'll look to invest in those companies and then really, really invest and help them grow. We're in an era that requires radical collaboration. If we're going to tackle what is one of the few existential challenges, a challenge to our existence with climate, if we don't tackle it, we need to team up. We need to make the best of our collective collaboration. We need to really build sort of new ecosystems where partners come together to drive scale fast. I really like how you described making the best of collective collaboration and helping these companies scale faster. So what sorts of qualities are you looking for in the companies you're investing in? I'm thinking of any of the entrepreneurs that I've met or spent time with. They are driven by two objectives. I've had some investors in the past saying it's sort of like if you're dual objective or you have two objectives, then that's a bad thing because you should just be focused on financial returns. But when you spend time with entrepreneurs or investors like us, actually, where you're trying to solve other problems, that's incredibly motivating. So there's a great alternative dairy company. They're actually focused on how do you produce milk proteins using bioreactors, actually using tiny fungi to make milk proteins. So it's basically milk with no cow. And that's the problem they're trying to solve. They have a fantastic scalable business. We use 850 billion litres of milk product a year and growing. And dairy is 3% of greenhouse gas emissions. So they can produce lactose-free ice cream. I'm really looking forward to cheese at some point because I'm a big cheese lover. Or milk products with no cow. You can absolutely measure it because you know you've got a 95% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and you can look at the milk products you displace. And when we're looking at things, whether we're rolling out energy storage or carbon capture and storage in decarbonisation partners, we can count that too. We need to measure how we're impacting climate. And we know what the carbon budget is for the world. We know what we need to do. And it's to create the roadmaps to really take us towards that net zero trajectory. And You can pick any of the entrepreneurs and they're trying to solve for a problem like that. When you can align purpose, technology, product, people, business model, and capital, you can change the world. Steve, you touched on this a little bit, but perhaps go back to the role that capital plays in this. The companies that are at the forefront of this innovation require investments. Why is it important that those investments have patient investors? If you look at a lot of these technologies, they need new facilities, they need to get to economies of scale, 
And they may have proven technologies, but they're still commercializing. And that's a passage of time. So you need long-term capital behind them. You also need partners that are going to help companies navigate through sometimes maybe even a hostile industrial ecosystem. How do you find the right partners, the right channels to market? And I think on some of these, we're going to need the transitions to go so fast. We also need policymakers to lean in and look at how do they clear pathways. Just my favorite topic of plant-based food, but if you go back in Singapore, the regulators actually permitted the use of some novel food technologies quickly to get out of the way and facilitate the pathway for a plant-based food company to roll out new technology. So public-private partnership, patient capital, and strategic scaling partners are all part of the mix. Steve, when we talk about climate change, we should acknowledge that it tends to disproportionately impact low-income communities. The reason being that when climate disasters happen, it's the low-income communities that get hit and that don't have the resources to rebuild back as quickly. So how do we ensure that this energy transition that you're talking about is a just and fair transition? I think it's a really important question around a just transition. It's not just in the developing world that it's vulnerable communities that get hit most by climate change, but it can be the same in the developed world as well. You're on low incomes. You may not have access to insurance. They will have less access to energy-efficient technology. They'll have a higher proportion of energy bills. There'll be a whole host of reasons. The other thing is there's a jobs element to this as well. So overall, most of these transitions are net job creators. If you go back a couple of years, there were 11 million jobs already in renewable energy. So it's a real job creator relative to traditional technologies. But if you lose your job as a coal miner, then you don't really care if somebody else gets a job somewhere else or five other people do. It's about your job and your community. And I think because this transition is being driven partially by policy as well as technology, we've really got to look at the communities that are going to be impacted not just by climate but by these big transitions where there'll be a shift of jobs and we've got to look at how do we invest in those communities and how do we make sure that people get access to the skills they need and to a share of that new economy and lastly really as we think of the poorer most vulnerable communities in the world if we do not aggressively tackle climate change then this will absolutely stifle development opportunities for hundreds of millions, potentially billions of people. And I think we really need something akin to the Marshall Plan for parts of the developing world, actually, where we really lean in and look how do we create energy access, skills, food security, climate resilience. Otherwise, it will be a disaster for those people, and we will see refugees on a scale we cannot imagine today. Steve, let's talk a little bit more about your career. You obviously have a wealth of knowledge about the topic of sustainability. It turns out you were also the chief sustainability officer at IKEA. You've been an advisor to a variety of organizations, including the World Economic Forum. So how have you seen sustainability evolve over your career? Early in my career, Oscar, I remember being at a dinner party and somebody asking me if I got paid for what I did. And now you see sustainability has gone from people thinking about pandas, pandas are important, but people thinking it's a pandas and polar bear issue to realizing it's about our collective future. And it's on every boardroom. It's 
I would say, the topic that people are focusing on increasingly in capital markets, and it's gone completely mainstream. And people with any sort of experience in this professionally are in super high demand. So it's been a complete and utter transformation. But that's been driven by external factors. You know, we failed to react collectively to climate change. We've more than halved nature. We have plastic pollution from the poles to the equator to the deepest marine trenches. So we have a challenge to solve this problem. And that's why I think we've seen sustainability mainstreamed. You've also, as part of your career, co-founded the We Mean Business Coalition. You founded the Climate Group in 2004. So just continuing along this topic, what lessons have we learned? What progress have we made? Yeah, I think when we put our minds to things, we can transform the status quo. And the status quo is actually an illusion. There is no status quo. I'll give you an example of that. When I was in the Climate Group, I met with the chief strategist and a chief technology officer of a well-known European auto company. And I said to the CTO, surely the future is electric vehicles. And he slapped the table and said, never while I am CTO will we produce an electric vehicle. And he's absolutely right because he's no longer CTO, but they're producing lots of electric vehicles. Sometimes it's easy to look at the present and think, Of course, this is the way it is. We feed the world with beef and dairy, or we produce energy from coal and gas, or we power cars by petrol and oil. That's not necessarily the case, and the future is the one we choose. And staying on that subject, you looked at projections of the future. So I looked at this sequentially on renewable energy when I was in the climate group, and we looked at projections for renewables, and there was the International Energy Agency, the World Bank, various financial institutions. Everybody massively undershot just how fast renewable energy took off, except, amazingly enough, for Greenpeace, who got it right. So the most ambitious projections for renewable energy were the right ones. So when these things start to scale, when it's truly an exponential curve, and they really, really take off, we can see that now playing out with energy storage technology. You can see it playing out into the development of alternative materials, etc. So there's economies of scale. The importance of policy in this. Policy risk is significant. But when you look at, say, solar, it was initially German government feed-in tariffs, so creating incentives for solar power, about 60 cents per kilowatt hour, which is not an insignificant stimulus. So that helped build the early solar industry. And then we've seen various US states, the Chinese government and elsewhere, create incentives to scale solar. And when we're getting to economies of scale, those government policies incentives are critical. We need government innovation in policymaking alongside business innovation and investment. And the last thing, I think, really focusing on Super Bowl targets I gave a TED talk a few years ago when I was in Ikea, and I said 100% targets are the ones to aim for, because if you have a 90% target, more than 10% of your business wants to be in the 10%. If you have a 50% target, everybody's confused. Are you backing the future or are you backing the past? So when you go for 100% targets, like 100% electric vehicles, 100% renewable energy, 100% decarbonization, 
you create marvelous clarity about what the future looks like. And we've seen that now, like one of the We Mean Business Coalition initiatives run by the Climate Group is 100% renewable energy focus. It's called RE100. And there's now nearly 300 companies there. And that's really driven tremendous adoption of things like power purchase agreements and helped accelerate the adoption of renewable energy. And that will unlock clarity, innovation, and you will really go for it. So stretch targets work. Steve, as the world goes back to normalization, which is a process that is unfolding differently in different parts of the world, but as we're starting to kind of crawl out of the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, what's your view on individuals realizing the urgency of the climate crisis and that they won't just go back to the status quo, but that they will recognize all the things that you've mentioned? You touched on government policy being a key ingredient, but what gets the individual living on planet Earth to change the way they do things? I think you ask most people now, and people know extreme weather is the new normal. And as we see that, whether it's devastating forest fires in California or increased typhoons across Southeast Asia, people know that this is really consequential now already. And there's a very high level of concern. And we've actually seen that during the pandemic, there's been no backing off of concern. People expect businesses to deal with climate. People expect governments to deal with climate now. So I think that's firmly embedded and it's not going to go away at all. And that gives me sort of cause for some hope for the future, really. Steve, you've given a great message to all our listeners about the importance of climate change and innovation and how we're trying to address that. What's the message to the investment community that you would give? I think the investment community can sometimes look backwards to look forward. And now we can see, actually, change is happening fast. And climate change in particular is going to reshape the business landscape. This is a $50 trillion investment opportunity. So we have to lean in and look to the future we want to invest into. And the future of investing in new, low-carbon, zero-carbon technologies and businesses is inherently massively lower risk than staying invested in the carbon economy of the last century. There's a friend of mine, Sharon Burroughs, who leads the union movement, and her quote is, there's no jobs on a dead planet. You could say there's no financial returns on a dead planet as well. So this requires our best efforts. I've heard another one along those lines that there is no planet B, which I think is just maybe another way to think about it. Yeah, there is no planet B. And so on that, what is your biggest hope as we move forward towards a net zero economy? We just think of the things we're starting to access now. I mean, with solar, there's no peak sun. We've got 5 billion years of sun reserves that we've only just begun to access. Actually, if we switch to a more plant-based diet, we can have hundreds of millions of acres and hectares come back into production, into natural forestry, into grasslands, if we can end air pollution on our watch, we can create energy access for the 800 million people who don't have access to electricity today. We can enable the third of the world's population, amazingly, that's still cooking on wood charcoal to have clean cooking and end indoor air pollution. So we can create a world of abundance where we have abundant energy, abundant food, where we can thrive 
where we reverse the decline in nature and we end global warming. That is absolutely in our capability to do that. And it has to be our organizing principle for the rest of our lives. Well, they say never waste a good crisis. And it certainly feels like we're in the midst of one now. And you've highlighted a lot of great innovation and hope for the future. So Steve, thank you for your time. And thank you for joining us on The Bid today. Thanks, Oscar. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management, Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.